Hello and welcome to the Medjlis Podcast, Radio for Europe, Radio Liberty's current affairs talk show focusing on Central Asia. I'm Bruce Paneer, host of the Medjlis and author of the weekly Central Asia and Focus newsletter. The Russian-led Collective Security Treaty Organization, or CSTO, has been around for some 30 years, and some have compared it to a sort of Warsaw Pact created within the Commonwealth of Independent States. Although its current members, Russia, Belarus, Armenia, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, and Tajikistan, regularly conduct military exercises, the CSTO has existed mainly on paper, at least until January this year, when the CSTO sent a relatively small force to Kazakhstan to guard key facilities when violence broke out in Kazakhstan. Since January, the CSTO has had opportunities to intervene in conflicts involving member states when Azerbaijan attacked Armenia and when Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan fought a brief war, but the CSTO stayed out of both. So what is the value of being a CSTO member, and does the organization have much of a future? To discuss all this and more, I am joined by Erika Marat, an associate professor at the National Defense University in Washington, D.C., and Rafaela Pantucci, senior fellow at the S. Rajaratnam School of International Studies in Singapore. All right, well, let's start this thing. I'll start with Erika. Uh, you know, should we really be surprised at the at, at the CIS or CSTO's uh, ineffectiveness this year? You know, it is it's been something of a paper tiger for a long time, for most of its uh, existence, really. Uh, you know, I'm reminded, for example, that in 1998, Uzbekistan called on the CSTO's help when the Taliban arrived at, at their border. And uh, was the Belarus president, still back then, uh, Lukashenko, said that he wasn't going to send anybody to, to Central Asia to help them out with their problems uh, in Afghanistan. So uh, should we really be surprised at the CSTO when people actually need them, when member states are calling for help? Uh, are we surprised that the CSTO is, is reluctant and, in fact, won't go to the aid of these countries? Thank you, Bruce. If anything, I'm surprised that there is still hope that CSTO will do anything <laughs> and that and that um, uh, countries continue to uh, call for CSTO assistance in solving uh, problems with, with member states of CSTO and with other uh, countries. For instance, in the case of Armenia, recently uh, Armenia called for CSTO's assistance, um, re- received nothing, and now it was the case of Kyrgyzstan. Um, CSTO is not a military organization. Uh, or security organization that vouches for the interests of its members. It is an organization that allows Moscow to build uh, bilateral relations uh, with its members and uh, pretend uh, as if uh, Russia is the security guarantor um, in in the region. It is it is not that. And um, if anything, I think this is really the beginning of uh, demise of the organization. I mean, the demise, the organization was never effective, but I think now we're really seeing possible uh, demise of of the organization because of how uh, countries like Armenia and Kyrgyzstan uh, no longer see any use in the organization. And uh, it became a matter of public discussion in those countries, whether membership in in CSTO is even uh, worth it. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you. Um, You know, I'm going to pick up on that point with you, Rafael. Um, You know, there's it, this organization was, I mean, it, it existed in the 1990s, but it really didn't do any, very much. But, you know, kind of like the Eurasian Economic Union, uh, for instance, this, this seemed to be something that, that Vladimir Putin, the Russian president, really wanted to to have a firm grip on and, and thought it was very important to keep these countries involved. 
So we, we kind of understand, as Erica mentioned, you know, that, that for Russia, that it was really important to have this organization. But what what did the other countries really get out of this, besides the fact that maybe they're pressured under Russia, but certainly they have their own interests in, in being in a security organization. And so is do you see are the, the other members, what are they looking for from being a member of the CSTO or what, what were they hoping to get out of being a member of the CSTO? I mean, I, I suspect it's always a kind of mix of interests. I mean, the fact that this was born sort of out of, you know, the structures that Russia tried to push out in the wake of the end of the Soviet Union and its sort of partner states, you know, not all of the former members of the Soviet Union were that keen to leave, you know, and some of them quite liked the connections that they had with Russia and wanted to try to cultivate them. So I think initially there was a kind of desire to retain that kind of connection and try to take advantage of it in some way because these were countries that have been kind of pushed out into the world and we're trying to figure out, you know, how do we operate? What do we do? So I think that's what kind of initially drew people in. And then frankly, I think what's kept them in over time is a sense of hope that maybe there's some benefit to be gained here. And, you know, I think they conclude in an awful lot of cases that there's probably, you know, more to staying in than you'd lose by leaving, you know, in the sense that, you know, you're not really, you might not be gaining much, but you're also probably going to lose more in terms of, you know, aggravating Russia or causing some sort of ructions there. So it becomes a kind of a default thing that they participate in and they sort of continue to be involved in. And, you know, I think the fact that it's notably failed to resolve a number of clashes. And, you know, this year we've seen clashes in Armenia, Azerbaijan, and we've seen clashes between Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan. And this year there's nothing to resolve these. And these are not new clashes. These have been going on for some time. So, you know, the organization clearly does not play a role in trying to fix these problems between countries. The kind of appearance in Kazakhstan was exceptional. And in some ways, one could argue, was probably just to give a kind of cover for Russia to come in, you know, and so Russia didn't want to come in because clearly that would have been politically sensitive for, uh, you know, Mr. Tokayev. And so bringing them in on the CSTO kind of diluted it a bit. But I don't think that was out of some sort of adoration of the CSTO. So I think it's an incredibly utilitarian thing that's seen from everybody's perspective in that sort of light. Okay, thank you. You know, then I'm going to give this question to both of you, but I'll start with you, Rafael, um, about this. What, how much, how much of an effect has Russia's war in Ukraine had on, on, you know, kind of throwing the CSTO's ineffectiveness into the spotlight for everyone to see? I mean, is that, was, is this a big catalyst, a watershed moment for the CSTO that Russia's uh, complications and, and seeming failures of its military in Ukraine are casting all kinds of doubts on the, on the, on the need to even be in this organization? I think the um, invasion has cast a light on, frankly, Russia's role in its wider region. And I think, you know, I mean, relatively recently returned from a visit to uh, the region. I mean, I was struck by the negativity that there is really towards Russia at a kind of public level. You know, I mean, there's always some level of that, but it's really quite striking at the moment. And it's all very clearly linked to you know, what's what Russia's done in Ukraine. So, you know, I think that's had a much wider effect on Russia in general. I think the CSTO sort of suffers as a result of that, I think. But in, in some ways, from my perspective, I think it's really the fact that the organization hasn't stepped up once again, as we've seen quite serious trouble in a number of countries. And then also, I think the recent reporting that we've seen around Kyrgyzstan, you know, declining to host an exercise. Um, you know, that's, I don't think it's the first time that's happened. And we've seen members drop out of the organization and come back in over its history. So, you know, it's not surprising in some ways that people have a sort of, you know, slightly negative, but it is indicative, I think, of the fact that, you know, this is a wider problem that Russia is going to increasingly find in this particular neighborhood. 
And Erica, uh, this, the same kind of question. And, and can you know, since we are, uh, since we focus on Central Asia on this show anyway, I remember you know after the Taliban came to power in August 2021 that the CSTO made a big deal out of holding exercises in Central Asia. But when you look at what's happening to the Russian military and and Ukraine, you know, there, there must be some doubts about the effectiveness of, of the CSTO. If there was a threat from Afghanistan, this must be very disheartening to the governments in Central Asia, I'm thinking. Yeah, absolutely. So for smaller countries like Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan and Armenia, uh, participating in those annual drills gave an opportunity to really be impressed by the Russian uh, military, uh, the might of the Russian military, the helicopters, the tanks, the and and, and Russian strategic planning, um, Russia's Russian way of war, and so on. Right. But now uh, seeing the collapse of Russian military in Ukraine, I think that mirage of the strong uh, Russian military is now dissipating. And uh, countries are realizing that uh, this whole time, Russia was not uh, what it presented itself to be. And um, there is more just on a regular, uh, just on a public level, uh, as Rafael mentions, there is this notion now that not only Russia is a brutal force, uh, it's not this benevolent neighbor who is vouching for the security of um, its neighboring states, post-Soviet region, but it is actually a really weak neighbor too, and uh, ridden with corruption, unable to achieve its military goals, and and uh, causing so much, uh, so much pain. So um, this mirage of uh, Russia being again uh, military, uh, military uh, superpower on the one hand, and also um, guaranteeing security in the region on, on the other hand, uh, that this mirage is dissipating even among people who were not previously actively involved in thinking about politics and security in the region. Mm-hmm. Thanks. Would you say it's it's uh, fair to say that um, the future of the CSTO is in many ways linked to Russia's performance in Ukraine? Yes, absolutely. Uh, so it's it's linked to its uh, Russian to its performance in Ukraine. That's one, and it's also now linked to uh, inability to respond to multiple crises on its territory, on the CSTO territory. So I think um, it was quite a, an interesting move by the Kyrgyz government to refuse to host the CSTO drills, and maybe we'll see more of it in the future. Uh, that countries are more reluctant to subscribe to CSTO activities um, in many ways because bigger countries like Kazakhstan uh, are taking a bolder approach to Russia Um, and uh, countries like and and Uzbekistan in particular is not a member of CSTO so I think um, yeah I think the 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 might of CSTO the image of CSTO suffered a great deal and I don't know how it will recover in the coming years. If I could add in a, a tweet to, I think Erica's excellent points there about the sort of weakness of organization, which has been demonstrated. I mean, I think one of the things that I always thought about uh, the CSTO exercises from a kind of Russian perspective in particular was, you know, it was not only an opportunity to impress and, you know, show off to these smaller countries, the capability that Moscow has, but also it was kind of a, a sales pitch, you know, it was a way to show off their new hardware to, frankly, a customer base. <laughs> and I think that customer base is now watching as this weaponry is being deployed, you know, to great failure, frankly, in Ukraine. And that will have a kind of deleterious effect, I think, to, you know, the region and its kind of connections to Moscow uh, on another side of that military capability. So I think it really is indicative of a much wider kind of degradation of Russian 
of Russia's vision uh, as a kind of security provider uh, across this region, which cuts into various different angles. Oh, great. Thank you. And let me do, let me do my halfway point uh, pitch here real fast, and we'll get into the, the meatier part of the conversation about what's, what's going to happen next. So this is the Medjly's podcast, and we're discussing the CSTO and its relevance, given the organization's failure to have much influence in recent conflicts involving member states. Joining me in the discussion today, Raffaella Pantucci, Senior Fellow at the S. Rajaratnam School of International Studies in Singapore. Uh, and... Erica Marat, an associate professor at the National Defense University in Washington, D.C., and I'm Bruce Paneer, host of the Medjly's podcast. Uh, thank you both for being on the program. Okay, now we, we got we to get to the, the real problem for all the countries that are member states. If the CSTO is ineffective and if you can't count on it for anything, where do you turn? And I'll start with Erica. That's a good question. And I hope there is a greater realization in Central Asia that they need to align on their own without external powers like Russia or China. Um, there are talks like that among various uh, government officials um, in from Uzbekistan and Kazakhstan that we really need to have our own our own thing going on without external, you know, the, without the plus one. By Russia or China, but of course the the strength of CSTO, uh, sorry, of the SCO, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, is on the rise, and I think it will continue to uh, be, continue to be an influential organization. I think Rafael can talk more about it. But there is another interesting trend uh, that we are seeing, and it's yet to be. Um, yet to be seen what will happen. But there is the Turkic alliance now um, in, in the making between Turkic uh, countries in Central Asia, Azerbaijan, uh, Turkey, and for some reason, Hungary. That is That looks like is becoming more prominent precisely because of a disappointment with Russia and uh, uh, the, the, the disagreement with what was Russia is doing in Ukraine and, uh, frankly, uh, the feeling that Russia may do something like that in its other uh, neighbors' uh, territories as well. So that's an interesting trend to observe. But overall, I think, um, yeah, there, sh- there, there, there is a potential for a uh, Central Asian organization, some kind of agreement, uh, some kind of formal alliance uh, on security in the making, whether it will include Tajikistan or Turkmenistan is hard to say, but I feel like um, the leaders uh, and the governments are um, moving closer and closer to uh, solidifying that as well. Great, thank you very much. Okay, Rafael, let's throw this. Let's throw the SEO into your your corner here for a second and talk about that. You know, there there was a time when actually the Shanghai Cooperation Organization used to run a lot of military drills uh, with their member states, uh, including huge ones with thousands of troops involved and hundreds of pieces of military equipment. That that kind of faded away. I think it, uh, apparently, at least as I read it, Russian President Putin kind of. Uh, took a a dim view of the fact that China seemed to be making inroads in the security field anyway. Um, But what 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 uh, is the SCO a potential? Well, if not replacement, at least temporary substitute for the CSTO. I think it's a it's an interesting question. I think that the SCO is fascinating because in many ways it, it started. You know, if we go all the way back in the beginning of the CSU, it's the Shanghai Five. It was about delineating China's borders with the former Soviet Union, and then that 
developed in 2001 into the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, and the first kind of structural thing that it did was create the um, uh, the regional anti-terrorism structure with that unfortunate acronym RATS in Tashkent. Um, you know, so terrorism and security has always been kind of at the heart of the organization. But as you say, it, it actually hasn't tangibly done much except run a lot of these exercises and do a lot of these engagements. I think the suspensions that we've seen over the past few years, I'm not sure that they were down to Russian influence um i suspect it might have been simply the fact that the chinese you know during covid really pulled back into their shell um you know and i think we saw this even at the seo samarkand summit where president xi only participated in some of the events there is a real fear in china of covid um and that continues and so the kind of chinese ability and willingness to engage is very difficult i think i heard stories about the engagements that they did still do with russia for example uh, during covid you know required large numbers of soldiers to frankly go into quarantine for long periods of time um, before and after so you know, I think there's a kind of practical thing. The question is now that it looks like we're coming to the period where China is opening up more, um, whether they're going to kind of restart them. And would that be able to then replace the SEO in some way? Well, I think the difficulty is that, you know, the uh, the kind of requirements that we're talking about here for the CSTO or the SEO to step into would be, you know, trying to come and broker between, you know, warring factions in Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan or Armenia, Azerbaijan. And I don't think we're going to see the Chinese wanting to lead any kind of engagement that's going down that path. Uh, they're very concerned about getting involved in these sorts of problems. They would really rather someone else dealt with them. They would really rather take a back seat. And, you know, I think that in those sorts of terms, I don't know that we're necessarily going to see a surge to come and fill that vacuum. Um, having said that, in terms of having a kind of an overarching structure, which has a kind of military bent that covers a lot of the region, I think, yes, we could see the SEO increasingly talking and you know, acting in that direction. But I suspect the end result would probably be more trainings, more interactions, rather than more action per se, in terms of trying to resolve um, problems. So you know, I think, uh, you know, the SEO is an organization which is um, is very timid in some ways. <laughs> um, and it does a lot, but yet nothing at the same time. And that's sort of what's fascinating about it. And, you know, its ability to bring together all these great powers, even to do, you know, I mean, the fact that they do counterterrorism exercises, which involve both India and Pakistan, is quite an extraordinary achievement. What those exercises actually achieve <laughs> is not a vast amount. And I've never seen the organization talking about trying to actually resolve questions. But, it's interesting that they're able to bring all these people together. And I think that certainly, I think I could see the SEO doing more of um, in the future. Um, and in some ways, one could argue that's not dissimilar to what the CSTO is doing. I think the key difference might be that I think the CSTO is very much controlled by Moscow, whereas the SEO, you know, I think the member states actually do have some say in it. The way it's been built is that, you know, everyone has a sort of ability to have veto powers. And that means that you do see regularly you know, some powers will block things for very long periods of time because they're just not interested. And within the way the organization's built, that's kind of permissible. And frankly, China continues to operate at a bilateral level with everyone anyway, so they continue to achieve their goals. So, you know, in a way, it could continue to provide some sort of security umbrella organization without actually necessarily doing some of the practical things that we're kind of talking about. Great, great. Thank you for bringing that up. And, and Eric, I'll throw this question to you. Um, let's look at it from the Central Asian point of view. How, would the Central Asians, do you think, really be that in, that interested in having China as their security guarantor instead of Russia? 
Yes, I think uh, for smaller countries, especially, um, this is it, it is important to have several uh, great powers interested in um, helping or in influencing them. Then, they, because then they can play them off uh, each other, just like what Kazakhstan has been uh, masterfully doing um, this year, including right uh, with China and Russia. I completely agree. Also, uh, with uh, Rafaelo, and we just published with Aseldor Kidiva. We published an article explaining that neither Russia nor China want to intervene in any kind of interstate, intra-regional disputes, conflicts, that's not for them. Their specialty is to support other authoritarian regimes and condemn any kind of quote-unquote color revolutions, uh, mass protests, and that's the most where they can actually intervene in domestic politics. But overall, neither China nor Russia are interested in uh, doing anything and preventing uh, stability, uh, preventing uh, um, escalation of uh, tensions in the region. And again, because of this uh, realization, in Central Asia, we do see a tendency uh, among uh, leaders and uh, government officials to try to come up with intra-regional uh, agreements. Uh, maybe it, it is a good thing that the, the disappointment is palpable uh, with uh, both Russia and China about um, their ability to, uh, to help the region uh, remain stable. And uh, it's not only that Kyrgyzstan is interested um, I think Uzbekistan is very much interested in having a more stable uh, neighborhood. Uh, Kazakhstan is interested as well. And again, there is a realization that neither Moscow nor Beijing are able to provide something that um, most members, most countries in the region want. And it is a it is a transformative period now, I think, for Central Asia uh, because of uh, the war in Ukraine, because of uh, weaker China now or less interested China and uh, because of uh, tensions that broke out of really the one one of the most serious conflicts that broke out uh, since the end of the Soviet regime uh, in Central Asia between Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan. Great. Thank you. Okay. Uh, we'll see if we can head toward the finish line here then. Um, okay. Every every great power uh, or power, uh, uh, I'm talking about Russia here, um, you know, they, they have their ups and downs. These, these things kind of come and go. Now, Russia certainly has the economic potential to rise from its situation. The war in Ukraine will end sometime or another. We'll see how how that works out. But there there's no reason to say that this is the end for Russia, right? There there there's going to be they're they're at a down point, but there's no reason to believe that they won't pick themselves up sometime in the next ten fifteen years again. Do you think that they'll be able to resurrect something like the CSTO or or actually maintain it? long enough that they can get themselves back up on their feet and actually ex exert some influence in Central Asia. Erica? I don't know. Um, it's really hard to tell. A lot will depend what will happen uh, in in Ukraine. And I, But I do feel there has been some kind of point of no return, that countries became bolder in standing up against Russia, against Putin. We, As we speak now, Putin, Rahmon, and Jin, um uh, Japarov are meeting uh, together and discussing, I, I assume, regional security as well. But I think I think there is a greater realization that Russia is a weak power. Russia is not able to live up to its own expectations of being um, of occupying neighboring territories. And um, I, I don't I, I don't think there is a bright future for CSTO. 
I think there will be a decline. And I think even if there is a formal membership within the organization, countries will learn to live without it, without uh, having to rely on it. Uh-huh. And Raffaello, a uh, lot of irredentists in, uh, in Russia. And, and is there any, would you, can you see a day when a resurgent, resurgent Russia uh, would actually try to reform something like the CSTO? I mean, we've seen, actually, we've seen the CSTO kind of go up and down uh, where it wasn't important, then it was important. Is there any, should we be writing the CSTO off entirely? Or is there an, is is it just waiting for a better days to, to rise up again? I mean, I think the CSTO is a structure. It feels like has repeatedly demonstrated an inability to act, um, and so in many ways, I think everyone seems to be resigned to that being the reality. I think what we saw in Kazakhstan at the beginning of the year was exceptional. Um, in its sort of history. So I, I think all the members recognize that and they get whatever they want from it. And I think you'll continue to see people being members because I don't think they lose anything by being members. And they probably you know, think, well, maybe I would lose something if I dropped out. And so, you know, I think that it will continue to sort of bump along without necessarily doing anything. And I think the question about Russian influence in, in Central Asia is a really interesting one. And I, I think at the moment, it's very clearly at a point where it's, a, it's a quite a low and that stretches deep into the public and I think into the governmental sphere. But I would add a caveat to that, which is I do think there are there is a limit to how deep that goes. There is still deep connections between the region and Russia. You know, the migrant labor issue um, continues to be really important. And that migrant labor, you know, is starting to go to other places, but, you know, nowhere near in the volumes that it's able to go to Russia um, and the amount of money that brings back. And that's going to continue to be a kind of important connection until that's completely broken. You'll always have this strong tie. The other thing is that it's interesting to look at how the region has criticized and pushed back on Russia. Well, we've seen aid coming from a lot of the countries. We've seen a sort of sense of public uh, disappointment and anger. Um, in terms of government criticism, the Kazakhs have been very, you know, very outspoken. And it's been very clear that Mr. Tokayev has, you know, pushed back. And I think a lot in the region actually look up to that. But if we look at the other countries, it's been much more sporadic, you know. And if we look at Turkmenistan, uh, which I know is always very difficult to analyze, it is notable that, you know, we've had you know, uh, Sardar, the new president, you know, visit just before he was sort of appointed president and then appointed president and then visit again and meet also with Alexei Miller suggesting that, you know, Gazprom and energy deals with Russia is coming in. And that will, of course, tie the country more to Russia. We've had, you know, the former president, President Gurbanguly Burdimuhamedov also go to visit. So there's clearly quite a strong connection that still exists there. And I think that probably is true in some of the other countries as well. So I think it's, premature to write off Russian influence in the region, because I think there are some very strong underlying, you know, there's a very strong underlying web that does exist that kind of ties the two together. And I think the question is, you know, it's clearly at a point now where the balance is shifting on it, but I don't know that those links have been broken. Um, the question is, how long does Ukraine go on for? <laughs> and then how long does that maybe cause some of these links to permanently break? But I suspect that that would be a very long way uh, down the path. And I think what we could see is a kind of more weakened Russia, maybe. But as you point out, Russia has a lot of kind of indigenous ability to kind of rebuild itself economically. And if it's able to do that, I think that would immediately continue to strengthen those bonds with the region once again. Uh, and I just want to throw something out. I know I, I promised I would wrap this up, but you, we were, you, you, know, you were mentioning Kazakhstan and they have taken a, a pretty strong stance. But at the same time, and I haven't done the math, but I, I, I believe that Presidents Putin and Tokayev have met with each other more than any other presidents 
in the CIS, with the possible exception of Putin and, and Lukashenko, right? But at least with, with the Russian president, that Takai has met more with Putin than any other leader, except for maybe Lukashenko. Is Kazakhstan, what is what if Kazakhstan ends up being more of an equal? Does that make membership in the CSTO, for instance, more attractive to a country like Kazakhstan if a weakened Russia means a stronger Kazakh uh, influence in the organization? And, and either one of you or both of you can answer this if you want. I think uh, Kazakhstan's influence is definitely raising, and uh, Tokayev has taken a few bold moves um, against Russia. I I think that, again, uh, returning to my previous point, if Kazakhstan wants to take on a more prominent role in the region, I don't think Kazakhstan wants to do it along with Russia or China. Kazakhstan would want to have its own um, its own thing going on and have greater influence in alliances that don't involve uh, great greater powers. So I think the I, I think in the future, if we do see a, a stronger role by Kazakhstan, it will be outside of CSTO, SCO. It will be something else, uh, maybe the Turkic alliance, uh, maybe some other regional uh, initiative, but not within those umbrella organizations. Mm-hmm. Rafael? I think it's a, it's a really interesting question. And I guess I think um, I think Kazakhstan's always had quite a sort of special place in some ways amongst the many, you know, CIS countries because of its, you know, size in terms of its financial power, firepower and its kind of influence. So I think in some ways it speaks to its role within that. I, I think I'd agree with Erica that, you know, Kazakhstan would probably want to create its own organizations. But I think the interesting thing I always think about is the Eurasian Economic Union, which you know, was actually initially proposed by President Nazarbayev <laughs> in the wake of the kind of end of the Soviet Union. And then ultimately, it's one that Russia decided to run with and really develop up. But it was an idea that came out of there, which I think speaks to maybe Kazakhstan's ability to kind of project an influence into this space. But I think from a Kazakh perspective, I think their ideal would be to have a greater kind of Central Asian structure that they could kind of lead and influence, um, and then them being the ones who are kind of helping lead the influence and interaction that that organization would have with Russia and with the world. And I think there, the, of course, tension would be with Uzbekistan, who would also feel that that was its kind of rightful role. So I think there's an interesting tension there. But certainly, I think Kazakhstan is at the moment showing itself to be quite uh, interesting and, you know, a strong actor in the region who is, you know, engaging a lot with uh, with Moscow, but it's also engaging with lots of others as well. You know, it's notable that President Xi went there first uh, before he went to, you know, Samarkand. He could have just skipped it and gone straight to Samarkand, but he chose to. And that, I think, is a reflection of the kind of the country's place and role in the region. And I'm sure the Kazakhs saw it uh, in that light as well. So, you know, I think Kazakhstan's going to play a very interesting role um, going forwards um, because I think it is kind of clearly setting itself up in a very interesting position. But I think I'd agree with Erica in the longer term. I think the way Kazakhstan would envisage the world would be one very much more around Kazakh-driven structures rather than, you know, inheriting Russian ones, which were, you know, former Soviet things. Excellent. Thank you. Uh, and I'll, I'll offer an opportunity to either one of you to comment on anything that to do with the uh, CSTO that I haven't said. Do you have any... Uh... Anything I missed? Anything you think is important to bring up? I can just add that, um, zooming in back to the uh, conflict between Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan, that unlike 
the analysis that we see coming out of uh, the South Caucasus, uh, where Russian weakness was probably exploited by Azerbaijan, I think the dynamics is a little bit different in Central Asia, and Rahmon was probably emboldened by uh, support from Putin and his close relations uh, with Putin in uh, launching um, a military uh, attack on the territory of Kyrgyzstan, whereas Kyrgyzstan acted from the position of weakness and inability to build strong, stronger relations with Russia. So in that sense, Russia still matters in Central Asia that it can uh, support one country's aggression against another country, and now Putin is uh, playing a peacemaker. So that there is still uh, some potential for Russia to play a manipulative role in Central Asia, just like it does uh, domestically, a really manipulative, uh, cynical policy by Kremlin. Uh, so there is that um, still going on in Central Asia. It will probably continue for some time. But if anything, I think it will further undermine Russia's position in the region because of this again, manipulative and cynical policy. I just briefly add to that, I think, you know, uh, I think Russia has got very deep roots into the region. And so its ability to kind of tweak things when it wants to is is clearly very, very still existent, and I think will be in the future. But I think in terms of the discussion about, you know, comparing the, the SCO to the CSTO, I think, you know, if we look at the trouble in Kyrgyzstan, Kazakhstan, it's certainly indicative of something that, you know, the trouble kicked off. Um, and then the two leaders sat next to each other at an SEO summit. <laughs> you know, it does, and then didn't resolve anything at that summit about uh, the violence there. So, you know, I think that tells you right there exactly what kind of a role the SEO would play in trying to resolve these issues. Excellent, excellent. Thank you for those comments, and thank you both for being on the show. I appreciate it. I knew that this would be a fantastic program with the two of you on it. So thank you, Erica, and thank you, Raffaello. And a big thank you to Nathan Shoemaker, uh, our Medjelis podcast producer in Washington, D.C. And a reminder, you can subscribe to the Medjelis podcast or the Central Asian Focus newsletter by visiting Radio Free or Radio Liberty's website at rfarl.org. Thank you very much, and we'll be back next week. Bye-bye.